1: Here we go, people, riding another wave of universal mystery and intrigue. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And I say mystery and intrigue because when we remove ourselves from concrete cities, traffic jams, and the not-so-pleasant sights, sounds, and smells that grace most of our major metropoli, we do see the magical, self-organizing beauty and connectedness of the natural world yet the egotistic sages of the scientific method try to break this all down into separate systems. Biology, chemistry, physics, quantum mechanics, genetics, and it's this sectioning off that has largely kept us from seizing the opportunity to look at our universe holistically, the way it should be seen, the way it works though I like to think our understanding is a lot further down the road than some crusty academics who are still clinging to a mechanical, materialist model and debating if consciousness is even a thing. It's a sad and backwards place for modern civilization's so-called brightest minds because it's so wrong and so archaic I have a hard time even accepting this is what they actually believe. But if they keep us glued to Netflix and baseball, bank accounts and mimosa brunch, who's really taken the time to hold their feet to the fire or develop their own personal relationship with the truly entangled universe? Well, today's powerhouse guest Nassim Harameen is certainly someone who is, as he's developed his own unified physics and holistic science that has been dubbed the hollow fractographic unified field theory. It's a poetic worldview that is as much an art and philosophy as it is a science, and with it comes a wide range of explanations and answers to the stranger aspects of the world that the mainstream model just ignores. The power of intention, the fundamental importance of sacred geometry and the flower of life... The understanding of reality held by ancient civilizations all over the globe, epigenetics, psi effects, the placebo effect, the entheogenic experience, the power of meditation, alternative methods of travel and off-the-books energy sources, remote viewing, astral travel, and a whole Pandora's box of things academia dare not touch, but are no less valid as verified pieces of this weird world. You might remember a previous episode we had dedicated to Nassim's work with the passionate advocate running the hollow subreddit known as hollow Joe, which definitely works to help set up today and proves my intention muscles must be working just fine as now we have the man himself. Of course, you can always learn more about this stuff at the Resonance Science Foundation where you can dig into a ton of high-level content, videos, articles, fully developed courses, and even join in on travel adventures to the world's most interesting locations and sacred sites. So let's get this thing going here. The man who knows the plan, the mystery decoder and brain overloader, the sacred geometry Jesus, and the father of hollow fractographic goodness, Nassim, welcome to the higher side.
2: (laughs) Hello, it's great to be on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. This is a real pleasure. I'm really glad to have you here. You have a contagious passion for life, and you really do seem to embody the science and philosophy that you talk about. As I mentioned, we have done a show about your work before, and I don't want to start off too fundamental. We won't get to the advanced stuff if we do that, but I got to get the wheels moving somehow. Maybe you can start by telling us a little more about the major principles behind your work and a little about how you uncovered it.
2: Well, I think if I was to identify one of the most fundamental principles behind my work, it would be that you can divide things to infinitum. And when you get down to the really, 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 really tiny, you're basically talking about electromagnetic fields that are fluctuating in the structure of space. So, so the basic principle is that space is not empty. Space is full, that we are swimming in an ether of energy and that this energy is the source of all matter and forces in the universe, and most likely the source of what we call consciousness as well. And I got to that at a very young age when I was contemplating the foundation of, of reality. I was trying to figure out how things got together, how things got so organized, how, you know, the bees and the flowers didn't get put on different planets, but they got put on the same planet because they need each other. You know, like how did nature organize? That seemed contrary to entropy, to disorganization. It seemed contrary to a universe that was just the the result of random fluctuations due to an explosion. I felt like there was an organizing principle, and I looked for it.
1: Well said. So we know the conventional models are a mess having two disconnected models for small and large things makes no sense but when you break down your work you make it all seem so connected and so obvious I just wonder if everything is entangled and it's all right there in front of us why don't the scientists studying the world stumble upon this reality is it more ignorance or is there some kind of cover-up
2: okay well I would say Most likely it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. They did stumble upon it. The problem is there was a lot of stumbling (laughs) (laughs) along the way. And historically, some of the discoveries that needed to be put together were spread apart from so much time distance that by the time these new discoveries occurred, the old one had taken hold and the fundamental split in physics happened. And what I mean by that is that earlier on, Maxwell, when he wrote what is known as the Maxwell's equation now for the electromagnetic field, assumed a fundamental ether. He assumed that space-time or space was filled with this substance, this fluid-like substance of energy, and that electromagnetic waves were the result of fluctuations in that energy. And he wrote these equations then, you know, describing basically little vortices as electromagnetic fluctuation of this luminous ether energy. And these equations were very successful and they gave all the right answers, except that they were very complex to solve fluid dynamics equation and quaternions were a little complex, people, as a result of experiments that were actually not complete experiments, Markelson and Marley and others, felt like it was, and as a result of Einstein field equation, felt like the fundamental ether needed to be removed and replaced with space-time, which was a conceptual notion of the structure of space. This conceptual notion mathematically did not require that we assign it a physical value. So space-time was like a, a concept in the clouds that basically, you know, then just was a way to calculate gravity and way to calculate the curvature of space time to define gravity. But space time was not ever defined. What is space time? Like, what do you mean space and time is curving? You know, if it's curving, it must be something. But that something was never defined. The concept got worse. With the event of quantum theory, which, of course, Max Planck was the father of, but actually was partly fathered by Einstein himself. And with the photoelectric effect, where he defines photons and got the Nobel Prize for that, people are not necessarily clear that actually Einstein was part of fathering quantum mechanics. But with that event, even further... Fundamental models of mechanics were abandoned, and physics became more and more mathematical and more more and more conceptual and less and less attached to reality. And as they stumbled, they found that oh my God, particles can be entangled in the structure of space-time at the quantum scale. So space-time at the quantum scale must be completely Different and and then they they couldn't reconcile gravity Einstein's equations for space time at the universal level at the stars and galaxy and planet level with quantum mechanics which said that space time was very very strange at the quantum scale and so this division happened mm-hmm. and all the Einstein. When the division happened, Einstein felt this can't be right. He felt like there must be a solution. And later in his life, he realized that the solution was to reintroduce the ether, mm-hmm. which in some bizarre way had been found. I'm just giving you all the stumbling had been found in quantum field theory. So as quantum physics developed and it got deeper and deeper in the equations eventually quantum field theory was written by a very very good physicist called paul dirac and when dirac got into the nitty-gritty of space at the quantum scale he realized that space was full of energy and that that space which is called vacuum fluctuations Is quantized and it produces particles that are called virtual particles, not because they're not existing, just because they exist very shortly in our reality. But because now physics had gone in such different ways between quantum field theory and relativity, that was never reconciled, meaning the ether and vacuum fluctuation were never put back together. Until recently, where people like me and others, for instance, Frank Wilczek, that did an amazing talk in 2017, I believe it to be one of the most significant talk from the mainstream physics community in 100 Years of Physics, that is called The Materiality of the Vacuum. If people want to look it up on YouTube, they can watch it. It's Layman Talk by Frank Wilczek, which is a Nobel Prize winner in physics which clearly define the history of the ether and show that vacuum fluctuations and the ether are the same thing and show that these should not have been separated, that the ether has to be put back into the physics and that's the solution to unifying Mm -hmm. unifying physics. I, of course, I've been on that path for over 30 years, and I've solved these equations. But, you know, it's recent that the mainstream is acknowledging this error that happened in physics. So that was a big, big stumble that Einstein tried to repair. But by the time he tried to repair, it, it was too late. They were not listening to him anymore. They felt like he had abandoned quantum physics and that he was going against it. And so the history books really portrays Einstein as producing this incredible work in a few years where he wrote special relativity and general relativity, but then not being very prolific or, you know, contributing very much after. And it's it's really not correct. <laughs>
1: That seems to happen a lot, where we have these bright minds, these people we have to remember through history, and then the further they go down the rabbit hole, then later in their life, we have in their biography, oh, and then they went nuts. Then they went crazy, and after a certain age, nothing they looked at mattered anymore. That was all nonsense.
2: Exactly. It's remarkable. (laughs) It seems like and they did the same thing to Dirac, where Dirac, at the end of his life, wrote Very, very important theory called the large number and hypothesis. Dirac was probably one of the best mathematical physicists on the planet ever. He's an amazing physicist. Uh, You know, he was the head of Cambridge. I mean, and although he had all these, you know, titles and results behind him, when he wrote the large number hypothesis, which was really, really close to solving all this. And, and, you know, my theory finishes it. He was thought to have been doing numerology. They accused him of doing numerology, <laughs> of being too old, you know, and uh, decrepit to uh, think properly. And it's so sad, uh, because it really removes I'm gonna dare to use the word magic. <laughs> it removes the magic of creativity and amazing discoveries that, you know, just passed by history and got us in a little bit of the mess that we are in today. Now, on the other side of the stumbling, there is Because, you know, the military industrial complex should not be underestimated. They have large budgets and a lot of scientists. They are quite capable of exploring things that are not necessarily available to the mainstream scientific community because of the restrictions of their position in the universities and so on, which is not present In the military industrial complex where they are encouraged to be creative and come up with new stuff. So there is, I believe, a clear understanding for a certain amount of time, certainly since Tesla and maybe before, that there is energy foundation to the structure of space-time that this energy can be tapped into, that this energy can be manipulated to produce gravitational effects or other effects. How far they have gone down that rabbit hole and been successful in doing that? Well, you know, they are still restricted from their education and their minds. so I don't know how far they were able to go, but certainly... I think that there is a much larger opening in that section and that there has been very, you know, deliberate, let's say, level of suppression and censoring of this type of information in the open mainstream community.
1: Well said. I think that's a great history lesson. It is a messy road, no doubt. And great point about the military industrial complex. And there's also CIA documents that show that they look at some very weird things that they would just tell us are nonsense. So Mm -hmm. I think those are important things to point out. And I wanted to ask you about consciousness, because of course, that's another huge buzzword right now. But you talk about it in a pretty interesting way. I think This refers to the unified space memory network, but you talk about consciousness as a field that reinforces itself and informs itself through experience. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Well, yes. So basically, I looked at this uh, fundamental energy structure of the vacuum fluctuation of this ether, this energy that's present in space everywhere. And people might say, well, what is he talking about? Space is empty. It's clearly empty. Well, think about it this way, like the space around you is full of electromagnetic fields and you think, you know, you don't feel them, you don't see them, it's outside of the range of your sensual body, so, you know, you don't know that it's there, like for instance, the radio waves uh, that are all around you, the infrared, the, uh, you know, the ultraviolet, the the background radiation from the galaxy is all around you. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of electromagnetic fluctuations all around you. And unless you put a little crystal on there and tune it with a little electronic sync circuit and tap into the radio waves, you know, and hear the radio set come on, you don't necessarily know that there's a radio station that's broadcasting the football game. Right. And so, just like that, you can imagine that there's a broadcast that's happening in the vacuum that is the universal broadcast <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that is the you know the radio station of creation uh, if you'd like, and that radio station is exchanging bits of information and so I found the bit size. I finally found the bit size. It had been found by Max Planck, but it was not applied to the structure of space-time because it was thought to be quantum mechanics and space-time is relativity and the two were not to be mixed. So I applied the grain size, which I call Planck spherical units to the structure of space-time and realize that space-time is basically these little bits. Now, these bits are really little. They're billions and billions and billions of times smaller than an atom. And there, you can think of it as little spinners, little vortices in space-time. And so you can think of it as like information in the structure of space that's being exchanged through this medium. And I use these equations... To try to figure out, okay, well, out of this exchange of information, can I output a proton? Can I put an electron? Can I get an atom? Can I get a table of elements? Can I get the size of the universe? Can I get the mass of the universe? Can I get the temperature of the universe? You know, all these things. And they all came out. But that, I'm just gonna say straight up, they didn't come out approximately right. They came out extremely correct okay <laughs> extremely correct to the point that i actually it looked wrong for the proton is one instant where it looked wrong it looked like the the mass was extremely correct but the radius was four percent smaller than what was measured at the time i published it in 2012 and you know with this new radius for the proton and said that maybe experiments would confirm it I didn't know in Switzerland in an accelerator, they were in the middle of making doing experiments to measure the radius, the proton more precisely. They ended up with a radius that was 4% smaller, exactly what I had predicted. And, you know, it's thrown a monkey wrench in the standard model and so on. And so it came up with the right answer. We just published for the universe, the mass of the universe, no need for dark energy, no need for dark matter. It gives the right answer for everything. It's remarkable for the forces, everything. This song published, I just solved for superclusters, clusters, galaxy, stars. I mean it's unbelievable. And all it is is a fairly simple equation that that describes the information exchange in this ether structure and how it produces boundaries at different scales. So basically, there's an exchange between the inside of the volume of the system and the outside, and this exchange produces an energy effect that we call mass, and of course, mass is equivalent to energy, right, E equals mc square and the c is the speed of light so now it's starting it it explains the speed of light it explains mass which we don't know what it is in normal physics so all of a sudden since we now know what mass and and speed of light is all of a sudden it explains energy and when you think about energy you think of systems you know that are organizing because of energy effects And what we see in biology, what we see on our planet, what we see in our body, which is extremely complex, hundred 100 trillion cells, each made out of 100 trillion atoms, you know, that function perfectly and all this, those are all self-organizing energy effects that you can't accommodate with the idea that stuff is just bumping into each other like with some kind of miracle that makes it like it bumps into each other just right to continuously create so that your arm doesn't fall off. So how does it self-organize? Well, because there's an exchange of information, you have feedback between the field and the system. And when you have feedback, you have self-organizing geometry. It's called fractal systems, equations that feed back on itself that produced high level of coherency, high level of complexity very, very quickly. And so basically you start to think, wait a minute, consciousness then is the result of feedback in the structure of space time. It's the universe learning about itself. And oh my God, like the whole thing unfolds. And you start to write equations and it comes out and it makes sense. And like all of a sudden you realize like we're all like little probes of space time learning about ourselves, And as a result, you know, informing the universe, the, the universe is learning through all of the biological structures at the very fine edge of the fractal structure of the boundary event horizon created by the structure of information.
1: Wow. Well, I think that's a nice little primer for people, for sure. It's deep and complex stuff. But, you know, we've been learning a lot about things such as structured water, frequency, the electromagnetic field of the body, and how important this stuff really is, even though we don't see it. And I wanted to ask you about these arc crystal pendants you're producing. The website says ARC crystals are a revolutionary technology that greatly boosts the body's natural ability to attune with the vitalistic and expansive zero-point field of the quantum vacuum. The quantum vacuum represents the revolutionary understanding in modern physics that space is not empty. On the contrary, it's the one thing that connects all things. So these art crystals, it sounds pretty amazing, but they also are quite expensive at $1,000 dollars. But tell us about these things. What what do they do? Why are they so unique and important? So,
2: of course, you know, as I wrote these equations over the years, over a period of 30 years, I started to think, OK, well, you know, these equations are clearly telling me how this all works. You know, what stop us from making technology that does the same thing as nature, Meaning, meaning if nature is exchanging information with the field. And since technology is made out of the field, like the equation basically says that all atoms are like little vortices of the field, then, of course, it's a direct thought or direct path to like, okay, well, let's use the little vortices of the field that we call atoms in the right way to create a larger vortices in the field right to like connect with the field directly if we could that would be amazing (laughs) when you calculate how much energy there is in the field in the vacuum fluctuations, it's insane in a centimeter cube of space there is 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cube like this is called a Planck density. It's insanely dense in energy. If we extracted one billionth of a percent of the energy in a centimeter cube of space, we would have energy enough energy only in that extraction to run the planet for thousands of years. Like the mass of the universe is 10 to the 55. So this is 39 orders of magnitude larger than the mass of the universe in terms of energy in the same cube of space. And then people might say, well, Why can't I feel it? Well, you know, the example of the radio waves is the answer. So now you can imagine that I start to think, Well, okay, how can I do this? How? What is my equations telling me about how to like engineer a, a device to like extract or interact with the vacuum? Well, uh, clearly you would need a really good oscillator. Well, what's a good oscillator? Crystals, right? Crystals are used in all of our technology because they're really, really good oscillators, right? We have little chips that have little wafers of crystals in there that we oscillate at very high frequency and so on. So clearly crystals would be one of the elements you would want to pick to try to create a resonance match to the vacuum structure and then plasma and all these other things. Okay. It gets more complex, but you can imagine. And I figured out a way to create enough coherency in a crystal metric that I can make a crystal that is very special crystal get a little bit bumped around, get a little bit oscillated by the vacuum fluctuation more than normal so that it starts to emit a little bit of energy. Now, you know, until recently, it was hard for me to prove it directly because I could see the effect on things. Like I could see the effect of the crystals after I treated it. On the water structure, for instance. It would change the water structure. It would energize the water. It would self-ionize the water. It would make the water all of a sudden change its pH, and which means that thousands and thousands and millions of negative ions have been added to the water as a result of exposure to this little crystal. But recently I was able, and we're going to publish this soon, I was able to actually measure the photon emission from these crystals. And yes, they are expensive. They are expensive because they're very difficult to build. So I, I, in 1999, I was able to produce a few of these crystals, but it took me until two years ago until I could produce them in quantities because the technology was just not present on the planet to make large number of these crystals. They take Uh, years to grow they take you know they have to be cut very 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 precisely and all this so so this is why you know they're not just like a crystal I pick out of the of a mine and you know just treat them a little bit and then they go to you so so that's why they're a little more expensive I'm sure these prices eventually will be able to be reduced but like any new technology that requires very high level of cutting edge technology to produce, you know, they're very expensive to produce. But we are now able to measure photon emissions that are being emitted by the vertices of the crystal. We have now understood the mechanism in which it's affecting the water molecules and various elements around it. And so it's very exciting because we're able to demonstrate that we're extracting a little bit, very little, but a little bit of energy from the vacuum. And the result is that the material world around us get a little energized from it. And water is 75% of your body content, 80% of your brain, So if your water gets energized a little bit, then that means everything runs a little better. That means that maybe there's better communication between cells. That means, you know, a lot of consequences to health. We applied this concept to plants. For instance, we charge water, applied it to plants. We see right away plants growing, you know, 200 to 300 to 400 percent faster you know so they they grow much faster four times faster all of a sudden they produce much more seeds the fruits are much larger they have much more mineral content they're much more resistant to pathogens and so if we see all that in plants it stands to reason that it's good for humans as well
1: yes and These things seem way more valuable than green paper anyway, but economics makes people skeptical of almost everything, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been granted a patent on this, and some of these diagrams I was looking at, they seem kind of like the shape of a flying saucer. And this idea of plasma and rotation seems to be central to both energy devices and potential modes of travel. I mean, these are the things people are talking about. To me, it's always in that same wheelhouse. Are these things related or am I crazy?
2: No, that's correct. And, you know, it might seem like way out there for most people that, like, you know, maybe we would have gravity control, you know, flying saucer type of things, you know, maybe in the very far future. I assure you that this level of technology is at our doorstep and it's not just coming from my laboratories there's many other labs around the world working on this you know I think we're finally getting to the place where we'll be just like in earlier history we learned to control electromagnetic field and by the mere control of magnetic and electric fields we've basically produce our whole advanced society while the next step for humanity is to learn to control gravitational fields which are we're now starting to understand how they work and that will give us gravity control so that we can travel in our solar system in our galaxy and you know not be doing it on fossil fuel it will change as well everything if we extract energy from the vacuum to Control gravitational fields. Of course, we can run all of our society on this energy as well. So you can start to imagine running your car or your house on like an oscillating crystal that is producing, you know, significant amount of energy directly out of the structure of space time. I mean, this is all around the corner and, you know, time crystals. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's happening in many different levels. Uh, Not just, you know, bleeding edge laboratories like mine, but as well into the mainstream that is really leading us down this road. And most importantly, to the unification of physics and our understanding of consciousness as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Great points. Yes. In terms of travel, it seems pretty clear rocketry isn't going to get us anywhere. I'm skeptical that it ever has. And you have said that we can control gravity via rotating plasma. This is in the mix of so many esoteric documents that seem to pop up on the internet, but it's definitely a theme. And we also hear a lot of talk about biophotons, and we've heard terms like the light body when we're talking about you know biological life. But there is something curious to this connection between light and consciousness or even the sun and our human bodies. How do you understand this relationship between light and consciousness or the sun and the human body?
2: Right. Well, like I was saying earlier, I mean, light is electromagnetic fields. Clearly, the original equations from Maxwell define light as a result of this vacuum fluctuation or this ether oscillating. That was the correct answer. The fact that the equations were eventually linearized by Heavisight and others and that the vacuum fluctuation or the ether was removed is not relevant because clearly it led us down the wrong road. Now, if we reestablish our understanding I mean, the wrong road. Let me just qualify that at least, you know, kind of a little detour. What we understand about electromagnetic field is limited by this detour we took. And now we're starting to see, yes, these fluctuations of the vacuum, which are electromagnetic fluctuation, remember the radio set, the radio broadcast of the universe is most likely the radio station that produces the event we call consciousness, in which it's not produced by the brain, but that the brain and the whole body, in fact, is like an antenna tuned to that frequency. And it's receiving and emitting information. So it's not just a receiver, but it's a transceiver. And so, you know, light that we see, so the visible light, the electromagnetic fields emitted by the sun is really, let's just say, it's like a phase or function of the vacuum fluctuation. It's a, it's the vacuum fluctuation at a fairly slow frequency that we see and that we experience. And the, those vacuum fluctuation at that frequency will start to create self-organizing systems You know, they just discovered, this was published very recently, that actually black holes, which are huge electromagnetic emitters, you know, they're the brightest electromagnetic places in the universe, are the fundamental elements. These electromagnetic fluctuations are not actually destructive. They just discovered that they're the elements that actually would be necessary to produce life. So our sun and the galactic center, you know, which is a huge black hole, the stars and all this are really just life-giving systems that are life-giving because they create organization in the structure of space-time. So, and then our body, are the result of this organization, which is smaller vortices, smaller, you know, little spinners in space-time that self-organize. And so we really are electromagnetic at the foundation of us. And then there's electric exchange. uh, So you can think of it as different resolution. Like imagine being a a light body at the quantum scale of like the Planck field, like way below the atom. And then, you know, imagine like the dampening of the spinners right? Creating like larger vortices of organized little vortices in space that we call protons and and electrons. And and so now you have an electric charge and there's electric charge that's exchanging and that we see as chemistry. And then the chemistry exchange of these electric charge produce self-organizing system that we call biology, you see, so it's like it's just a downstepping of the energy to energy levels in which we experience the world that like these other energy levels are are too high in frequency and subtle for us to
1: directly observe. Well said. I think that makes a lot of sense. We're just talking about scale and some of these same principles and the implications for health and wellness are pretty crazy when you learn about the electromagnetic fields and these things we can't see and the power of light and Mm -hmm. earlier when we mentioned rotating plasma well what is the sun what is a star other than rotating plasma i mean that's seems to be what it is and i've heard your art crystals described as a star in a jar too but To kind of move on to other celestial bodies, let me ask you about planets. I think our conventional model is pretty off on this, too. Mm -hmm. They say planets get more and more dense towards the core. But there are theories out there that planets are actually hollow or have hollow cavities in the middle. Some even say an inner sun or something in the middle. What are your thoughts on this and how planets really are comprised?
2: Right. Well, it it comes back to stars as well, you know, um, and and galaxies and universes and atoms. I mean, because I found from the physics I wrote, but I as well know from you know what I've learned in the universe is that there's one model. There's not like twenty million different things. The universe does self organizes in very specific ways, and you know, it's not just a free for all out there. And so, let me just say right off the bat that a planet or star that would not be hollow, that would be getting denser towards the middle and full, would be completely, completely inconsistent with what we observe. Mm. Meaning that we see stars and planets oscillating at very high rate and creating you know like ringing ringing in space like for instance we recorded the ringing of all the planets in our solar system and the sun we can they literally can be recorded and they're ringing and this would be equivalent of thinking that you can make a bell that's completely full ring
1: (laughs) right tapping on a rock or a boulder
2: Right. It's not going to ring very well. I mean, it would not sustain ringing, right? It would tear itself out if you tried to ring it too hard, you know, but a hollow structure like a bell will ring very well. And we see these stars and planets ringing very, very well. Our moon is a really good example. It's like it rings like there's no tomorrow when we land on the moon. And, uh, you know, a lander on the moon is a very teeny thing compared to the moon. When we land on the moon, just the fact that we land something on the moon makes the moon alter its ringing a little bit for like days, if not weeks. And so, you know, I mean, it you can imagine it's very sensitive. And so, you know, that is much more consistent with a hollow system. Now, now I'm making these claims not only because of the ringing, that's just one part of the evidence, the other part is the physics I wrote clearly demonstrate that that the center of all systems is singularity, so that might be coming to a shock to people. There is a singularity at the center of the earth. There is a singularity at the center of the sun. There is a singularity at the center of galaxies. And as I've proven in my math, there is a singularity at the center of the atoms we call proton. So a singularity or a black hole would, you know, for the Earth is very small, the size of a walnut, would be like a little point of light if you were to look at it from the outside in a hollow structure of our planet, inside that region, matter would have collapsed into that singularity. So the matter would be absorbed. The matter that's far enough would stay in orbit because of angular momentum. You have a balance at one point. You have a balance between, you know, the centrifugal forces of rotation and the centripetal force of the gravitational effect of the singularity. And so you would get a crust, and that crust would start to build various levels of density, which is called the carbon cycle in stars. And it would uh, go through various level of heat or thermal effects. Uh, It would produce high level of friction and heat and electromagnetic and magnetic components. And so if you measure the magnetic field of the Earth on the surface, it's almost 0.7 Gauss, you know, it's pretty strong. It's non-trivial. And, you know, you put a little bit of iron on a needle and it will point to the North Pole, and it doesn't matter how far you are from the North Pole, right? So it's a pretty strong magnetic field. Well, if you calculate how strong the magnetic field that Yet The core of the Earth would have to be to produce such a magnetic field on the surface, since magnetic fields drop at the square of the distance, and actually, in high magnetic field, it's exponential. But even if you do a conservative calculation, just at the square of the distance, then the magnetic field in the center of the Earth would have to be huge. And it'd be, you know, similar to what it would be for a black hole. So. So yes, I'm a proponent that the earth is hollow and that actually all planets are and stars as well. And they are centered by singularity and as well that continental drift is not the result of all the continent being together in some side of the earth at one point, but is the result of the earth growing. Mm. And so expanding earth theory, I thought I had discovered it by myself when i was doing my math and physics 20 years ago and then i discovered that another physicist in the 60s had come to the same conclusion the earth is not stable in terms of its size but it has been growing through millennia and you know when you shrink the earth 60 percent the the continents come together very very cleanly much more cleanly than the current prevalent continental drift theory and tectonic plates theory where they need to do a lot of deformation of the of the continents to make them fit together and people can see that on youtube as well they can go on youtube and put uh, expanding earth theory and they will see videos animation of this theory and i think it's much more correct and much more aligned with The concepts that a spinning sphere would not throw all of its mass to one side, Mm. but would expand and the mass, the continent mass would move away from each other as it expands.
1: Yes, yes. Well said. I think those are really great logical arguments for why you would think this way. I think the Earth grows as well. I mean, everything we see grows. Trees grow, people grow, animals grow. Mm-hmm. Why would we think the Earth doesn't? In fact, we do think the Earth formed. And then I guess the conventional model just thinks it stopped. It formed to a point and then just stopped. Right. And that doesn't make sense. I do think it would be continuous change like everything else. And you mentioned the rotational angular momentum. It's kind of like that ride at the carnival that spins so fast it holds you up against the wall and away from the middle. If you're under the influence of that force, if there was something in the middle that was dangerous, you'd be held off by that rotation. Right. And you mentioned a singularity in the middle. I guess I would be curious, is that singularity really dangerous to be around? Is it possible the the interior could be habitable or would it be way too intense?
2: Well, it depends. If the cavity is far enough from the singularity, it would be like our sun, just like the center of our galaxy, right? Like, you know, the center of the galaxy is is a supermassive black hole, but it's not dangerous to us because we're far enough in orbit that, you know, it's actually life-giving. This is the error that has been made, and this is starting to be rectified even by the mainstream, the error that has been made that, that has depicted black holes as these giants that just eat everything around them and just destroys everything. Well, they're starting to discover, no, actually, black holes may be the life-giving force of the universe and that they are, you know, the center of energy that produces all of our systems. And, you know, of course, I've been saying this for a long time. As a result, 25 years ago, I was in physics conference trying to explain to people that, like, there would be a black hole at the center of every galaxy, which at the time was, like, preposterous. And I got in a lot of trouble for saying that. And then eventually they found black holes at the center of every galaxy they've ever observed. And so, you know, of course, it's harder for them to swallow The rest that I was telling them, that atoms are mini black holes, that stars are mini black holes and are are black holes as well and so on. But they're getting there. They still haven't agreed to that. They'll get there. The atoms, it's becoming more popular. There's more and more very high-level physicists that are starting to realize that particles at the atomic level are acting very much like black holes. And so it's coming along, but basically... You know, a black hole is a vortex in the structure of space-time, and that vortex produces angular momentum. And so when there's angular momentum, you don't just have a gravitational force sucking towards the middle. You have a centrifugal force pulling away from the middle, and the two balance out and creates boundary conditions and stable orbits. And that's exactly what we see in the universe, whether at the quantum level or at the universal level.
1: So interesting. Yes. Singularities at the center of every galaxy, every atom, and every planet and everything. It just seems like the same stuff with a different scale. And let's get weird. I mean, I was just thinking about this, but we're talking about singularities and their potential for... I mean, they're entangled, so they have this potential for travel. Might we get farther by going inside the Earth as opposed to out into the universe if we can access that singularity?
2: Well... That's a really good question. Let me go a little further down the rabbit hole into (laughs) these equations. When I wrote these equations, something really weird happened. I was writing the equation for the exchange of information inside the proton, the volume of the proton relative to the outside. And it gave me the right answer. But part of the answer that it gave me was that the information inside the proton is exactly equivalent to the critical mass of the universe. Hmm. So that meant that all the other protons information is present in one proton. So it's holographic, which had predicted, but, uh, it was kind of stunning to see it just appear, you know, like that, because it wasn't just approximately the right answer it was exactly the right answer for the critical mass of the universe, which I finally just published now. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of stunning. And so I started to think about it. Well, you know, if atoms are mini black holes, these mini black holes may be connected by wormholes. And wormholes are predicted by Einstein field equation, but usually at the cosmological scale, right? Or we th- when we think of wormholes, we think of these huge, like vortices in space that could bring us from one side of the universe to the other instantaneously and all this stuff. It's predicted by Einstein field equation, but it's not being applied to the quantum scale until recently, until, you know, last few years. Now there's, you know, a very famous physicist, Sutskin that, you know, with Montessori, you know, and others shown that like, Maybe there's these micro wormholes occurring at the Planck scale that are riddling all the structure of space, that space, you know, that, that the vacuum fluctuation is not just fluctuating randomly, but actually it's creating these micro wormholes that connects everything. And so my equation definitely showed that. And I was really intrigued because then that means that all the protons are connected Like, it's all one big network, right? And so then I thought, wow, if we can enter the network, then we could go. So think of the black holes, singularity at all the scales, being the hubs of the network, like the servers of a network of computers, and the wormholes being the cables that connects all the servers, Mm -hmm. And so I started to think, wait, if we get inside one of those puppies, we could go anywhere in the universe instantaneously. You know, I came up with these ideas before I could prove them mathematically. I came up with these ideas 25 years ago. And so I started to observe the sun. I started to like figure out, you know, is there stuff coming in and out of the sun that's not explained easily? You know, I mean... Is there stuff coming in and out of the center of our world, Mm -hmm. of our planet, you know, that cannot be explained easily? Some say there is. Some say there is. (laughs) There's been talk about that stuff, things going in and out of volcanoes, for instance, you know, which would be a vortex to the center of the singularity. You know, I mean, you know, it's a good question you ask. I can't answer with certitude, but I would answer with some background to be able to give the answer and certainly some theoretical support yes if i was to try to go across the universe uh using the universal wormhole black hole network i would attempt to enter the singularity at the center of our planet which would lead to the singularity at the center of our sun which would lead to the singularity at the center of our galaxy And then, you know, if I wanted to go to another star inside our galaxy, then I would dial in the frequency of that star to lead to the center of that star. And then I would come out of the center of that star into that solar system.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. It really seems like the movie Stargate is a decent analogy, except that the portals are in the center of the planet, not these things on the surface. But they still need to be dialed in and then you can travel through them.
2: Right. So you'd have to create your own singularity, get linked into the network, and then go through the
1: scales. (laughs) Well said. Well said. And it does seem like the best way for your theories to be more widely accepted and to beat back the resistance is through creating technologies like the art crystal, technologies that clearly seem to work and validate the ideas because they'd be undeniable if these things worked. Are there any other things that you're working on in the technology space that might help to push this further?
2: Of course. I mean, there's the technology and there's the theory. The papers I publish in theoretical physics are very important as well because they inform the theoretical community of these advancements in physics. There's resistance, but more and more physicists are very excited about what I'm writing uh, all around the world. In the, in many universities, I'm fairly well known and uh, those ideas are becoming more and more accepted, that doesn't mean they can come publicly and talk about it because the institutions they're in are not so excited about that. We literally get people from all around the world that wanna participate. We have a small team of physicists, uh, PhD physicists, and astrophysicists, and astronomers, and and, uh, biologists, biophysicists, that work. we all work together. But as well in laboratory, I'm, of course, working on many other technologies than the arc crystals and eventually to reach, you know, gravitational control. And there's lots of these things that are going to come in the next few years in the future that are going to support, clearly support that the theory is correct. But the theory stands on its own. Of course, all good theories have to be sustained and supported by experimental studies, both observation experimental studies and technological development. So that's all there. There's a lot of observational studies that have supported my theory throughout the years. I've made many, many predictions that came through. The proton one is the most known one because it was well documented, but there's as well technological developments that supports my theory. They're not so well known because they're still in the confines of dark alleys of you know, and the back of laboratories and and uh, garage inventors around the world. But it's coming along and it's gonna emerge in the next few years, no doubt.
1: Wow. Well, I am excited for that, and I'm so glad I got to run through all my weirdo questions (laughs) for you, and big thanks to everyone who helped make this possible and get us connected. You're a lot of fun. You have a lot of really great, exciting ideas, and before we go, what would you want to tell people about following up here or learning more about the things you're doing with the Resonance Science Foundation?
2: Yeah, so if people go to the Resonance Science Foundation, you know, resonancescience.org, Uh, Then they can uh, connect with our community, for instance, all of our research uh, groups, and then as well get involved into the delegate program, which is a program where, you know, all the science I'm talking about has been written and you can learn about it. And there's like all the links, you know, that to all of the different things that we have discovered. This is all gonna change into an app very soon. We need support. We need financial support to be able to do that. We're working on it. And then it's really great because thousands of people from all around the world are participating over 80 countries. And so you get to connect with the community of all like-minded individuals every month for two hours. I answer questions for all the people taking the course. And we have a lot of fun. We discover together and being involved is what to like help this transformation happen is so critical. Every single person that gets involved, make a difference as well. It helps us financially to be able to finance this research, which is extremely expensive. You know, it's not easy. So it really helps us. And so you get to participate in in this transformation for, for planet Earth and for generations to
1: come. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I hope this interview has lit in the fire for a few people. It's definitely been an honor and a pleasure, my good man. Keep up the great work and take care out there.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was great to discuss this with you.
1: Oh, oh, it's magic. You know, people. Oh. Big show today, definitely one I was super excited to record and to put out to you. Obviously, I like to keep our subjects pretty diverse around here, so we do something from column A, and then next week I like to go to column D, then jump over to column Y. You know, we tend to go for that extreme diversity, and this one is pretty aligned with Jim Elvidge just a couple shows back, so we are kind of double-dipping. But when you get an email asking if you want to have Nassim on, you just say yes, and you deal with the rest. I've heard a lot of his interviews, and it seems like we got to talk about some things today that I don't know that I've heard him speak about before. Primarily hollow planets. Growing hollow planets, but hollow planets nonetheless. Clearly, that was my favorite part. I am always looking for more bright minds to confirm my crazy stoner desires, and a habitable hollow earth is certainly one of them. But this episode is about so much more than just that, and the hollow fractal paradigm is one that resonates with me quite well. The way he explains why our mainstream physics has been ununified and what he did to solve for them makes A lot of sense for me, at least as layman's explanation, I haven't checked the math. but Going back to guests like Eric Dollard, Shimon Janir, Aaron Murakami, and like I mentioned, Jim Elvidge. Of course there are nuances and small differences among these guys, but add it all up, and I think we're circling around a much better model for reality than anything else I know. Space is a medium, every proton is an entangled singularity woven into the nucleus of every atom. I mean, even if you pull up a diagram, a typical diagram, of the parts of an atom, it kind of looks just like this. And that's what we always say about quarantined physics. You can't change what the atom looks like, but it seems like the powers that be have shoehorned in explanations that make as much sense as they can without revealing the potentials for free energy, for flying saucers, for all the things guys like Tesla and T. Townsend Brown and Wilhelm Reich and Victor Schauberger were on the trail of. So when people see actual flying saucers or hear about folks who have made free energy devices, they think, oh well, that's clearly impossible but it isn't, and it requires what I consider to be a relatively small tweak to the way we think about the models. And it really opens the universe up to feel like some cosmic sandbox or playground where we do have this limitless potential. It seems like this framework of scarcity is somewhat artificial and just placed on us so that corporations and the dynastic families can stack cash. I'm pissed. But now, imagine an advanced civilization who knows these things, scopes out the Earth, and sees the ass-backwards way we do things just so we can consolidate green paper into the hands of a privileged few, and it's no wonder they stay away for the most part. But overall, I love it. A holistic look at a holistic world, it only makes sense. In fact, I've been hearing a lot of Andrew Yang recently, and he, of course, is the only guy in politics talking about automation and how the solution is yeah, uh, UBI, he says, a universal basic income. But really, we need to find value in ourselves outside of the market because the robots and the AI, they're going to take the market. So we better start assigning some value on love or what it means to be human or family or on why we're here and what we want our lives to be. The next phase of the Industrial Revolution, the automation of everything, is not going to be stopped. But the damage can be limited by getting out of the mindset that the only thing that matters is your productivity in some cubicle or on some assembly line. So when I say Nassim's work feels like as much a philosophy as it is a science, This is the kind of thing I'm thinking about, I'm talking about. And I don't just think it's a better way to look at life, with a corresponding science and apparently math, but clearly that's over my head. It's not just a better way, it's a necessary way. It's a much needed change in mindset, and this model is like a breadcrumb that leads to all sorts of paradigm changing places. And I tried to prove that today just by asking him so many out there things. And I also want to say big thanks to Hollow Fractal Joe for doing that first show with me, for setting the groundwork up, and for putting THC on the radar of the Resonance Academy's inner circle, and thus laying down the path that we walked to get to today. And since I mentioned all the far-out stuff I brought up, I guess I should tell you what was in the Plus Show if you only happen to be hearing the free first hour. But I asked him about magic and ritual and the mechanisms behind it, and he told us how he thinks it works. We talked about cataclysms and contact events, UFO disclosure and the military-industrial complex, when lost technology becomes legend, the Ark of the Covenant and the pyramids, health and wellness applications of his model. Of course, I had to ask him about the Breatharian stuff, but we also talked about new technologies in development based off his work. All really fun stuff, and we did not shy away from weird aspects of reality that must be explained by any model. And I felt like his answers were unique and intriguing Of course, this is how I put out the first hour ad free, is that we have these plus memberships. Instead of asking for donations, I say, hey, you like the first hour enough to tip me eight bucks a month? I'll actually give you two hour episodes instead. Seems like a good deal to me. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com. And speaking of thehiresidechats.com, I hope you heard my previous post in the feed. A little audio update on what the hell's been going on with THC. I'm obviously not going to go over all of that here, but suffice to say it's been a rough August and a rough launch on the new website. But we're 90% of the way there with just a little bit more to go. But we have a much more unified and user friendly system. How appropriate for today. But if you want to hear the full shows, hop on board. I got a very large catalog of hundreds of shows. And I could use you right now, actually. But I'm really thankful again to Nassim and those who helped to make it happen. I hope we can say justice was done here. I actually think there are many worthy higher side guests on the Resonance Academy staff, and I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about it. But thanks for listening. You have a limitless sea of options, and I work hard to try and make sure everything I do around here is worth your time. So take care, and I will see you soon with another heavy hitter, because it's crunch time for me the rest of the month. But until then, I've done my part. Your move, cultural perception managers, scientific quarantiners, and hiders of the hollow earth. Your fucking.
0: Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats you get to your desk and your boss says it's a mess and your soul slowly grows to a place where nothing grows when you think he's not around you insert a steady sound The OM says turn it down and you say it's just the higher side chats Oh do you think you'd be invited to Bohemia Grove to a Bilderberg club Oh do you think you'd be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare Of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the High Side Chats